All right, well, we're going to pray, and then we're going to get into this word. Father, I just come before you now in the name of Jesus, and I thank you for those that are here locally with us. Pray that you will keep us all well, um, that you will protect these that are out there in the weather, and um, that uh, you will just uh, provide for their needs. Pray that you'll open up your word to all of us who are willing to pay attention to you, that... um, we'll realize that this word is transforming. It can make us into something new. Um, it can give us the wisdom that we need, the discernment that we need to get through our lives and, and to navigate this increasingly complex and confusing world. And so I just pray that you'll open this up. Uh, it's a book about suffering and you know many of us are going through some suffering right now. And I pray that we'll be able to receive what you give us. I pray, Father, that you'll continue to minister to those that are struggling with issues related to their health, related to homelessness, um, related to finances, related to relationships, um, just related to confusion about the future. I just pray, Father, that we will open up ourselves to you and know that you're a good God, a loving God, you're a provider, and we wanna receive what you provide. And I pray all this in Jesus' name, amen. All right, so um, we're in 1 Peter, and when I, started this study uh, back toward the beginning of the, the, this whole pandemic. Uh, I titled it, This is a Test. And a good uh, motivation, a large part of the motivation of Peter writing this is that here were these Christians who were trying to do everything right and they were just undergoing tremendous difficulty. Sometimes we kind of have this thought, if you do what's right, then good things are gonna happen. If you do what's wrong, bad things are gonna happen. But sometimes when you do what's right, the world is full of bad people. The world is full of bad angels. And so sometimes when you do what's right, bad things can happen to you, right? But that just prepares us for heaven. That just prepares us for eternity because this is boot camp. That's what this is. Any soldier is gonna tell you that boot camp was like hell. You know, they just went through a difficult time. But when they get out of boot camp, then they're a soldier, right? I mean, they're strong, they're tough, they're ready, they're mentally ready. That's what this is supposed to be doing for us. That's my opinion anyway, okay? That's my way of expressing it. We're we're being given an opportunity to be conformed to the image of Jesus. Jesus is God's son. Jesus is what or who God wants each one of us to be, right? And Jesus is big enough to where each and every one of us here can be just like Jesus and still be very different from one another, right? We're the body of Christ. That's one of the ways that uh, the Bible expresses uh, what the church is. A lot of times when you think of a church, you think of a building like this building sitting here. But the church is not a building, the church is people. It's constructed of people. We're the bricks, right? The Holy Spirit is the mortar and he puts us together. And we're being constructed into this temple to glorify the Lord, right? So. We're a temple, we're a body. Those are all ways of expressing how we become a part of the Lord Jesus and we move forward. So Peter wrote this book to, uh, he called them exiles. It's kind of a way of thinking of yourself here on earth, right? So I know a number of you in this room are going through some difficulties financially and worried about you know, not having a home and so forth. But in the reality, the more at home we are on earth, the less likely we are to pay attention to the Lord a lot of times. But the more we're looking around and not knowing what to do, 
that is actually an opportunity to depend on the Lord, to say, no, I need you. I need you every moment. I need you to give me water. I need you to give me food. I need you to give me shelter. I need you to protect me. You need that every moment of the day, right? So, you know, those of you guys that are out there, I mean, you're tough. There's no question about it, determined. Um, but we need to express that dependency on the Lord Jesus and say, you know what, I'm, I'm just willing to, to trust you. So he writes to these folks, he calls them exiles, um, because their main citizenship is heaven. So, you know, you know, people that might come from another country, their main citizenship is Guatemala or Mexico or El Salvador or China or somewhere in Europe or something, okay? If you, you know, are a citizen here, that's your, your primary citizenship. But we're to think of ourselves differently. We're to think of ourselves as citizens of heaven. And that changes your, your way of looking at the world, okay? Because uh, there's a song... It's actually an old country song. I didn't know it was a country song. I just thought it was a hymn. But it goes, this world is not my home. I'm just a passing through. I like that, right? Um, because we are. We're, we're exiles and strangers. We're, you know, uh, in fact, a little later in the same book. And by the way, I'm, all of this is, is coming out of First Peter. We've already read all these verses. We're going to read the verses here in just a moment. But he... Uh, he tells us very clearly that we need to see ourselves as aliens and strangers down here, right? So there are those that I think, uh, I don't like this designation. I think that it is, um, it doesn't respect the lives of people who are just trying to survive and, and make a better life for themselves. But one of the, the disparaging terms for those that enter this country uh, without proper documentation, with they're, they're entering illegally, um, is illegal aliens. It just sounds horrible, right? But you know, we just need to think of ourselves as legal aliens, right? But increasingly, if you live your life as a Christian, that's going to put you at odds with those who are in power because the people that are in power now are increasingly opposed to what the Bible teaches. So if you choose to stand with what the Lord teaches, you may end up having to violate the law. Now, that's a difficult place to be in, but that was Peter. Peter was told, you know, Peter and John, they were told, don't preach, stop preaching. And Peter said, should we do what you say or should we do what God says? And we're going to do what God says. Now, Paul, the Apostle Paul, and Peter in this very letter said, obey the, the governing authorities. But obey them so long as they are praising what is good and punishing what is evil. When they start punishing what is good and praising what is evil, then we need to protest. And we need to respectfully say, I'm sorry. Can't do that. You know, this was uh, Martin Luther King Jr.'s way of changing, you know, there's a lot being said right now uh, about racism, but this is nothing like it was. Those of us that are older know this is nothing like it was in the 50s and the 60s. Now, I'm not old enough to remember the 50s, but I was a kid in the 60s, and I remember, you know, the, the push for integration and so forth, and I remember how hateful and how angry people were about that, you know? There was just, but... 
MLK made a lot of positive changes. Now, he wasn't a perfect person by any means. If you, know, you listen to certain people, they'll make him seem like he's a demon. You listen to other people, they make him seem like he's a martyr and an angel. He was just a man. But his way of protesting was not what we're seeing today. I mean, we're seeing government buildings burning, police stations burning. We're seeing property being damaged. We're seeing people being hurt. That's wrong. That's just wrong. It's not right to hurt people. You see, MLK and those that were protesting with him, and John Lewis was one of his primary um, companions, and he just recently passed away. I think this just within a week, John Lewis uh, died. And both Martin Luther King Jr. and John Lewis were ministers. And they said, we gotta do something about this. And so they did something about it. What they did was different. Instead of punishing other people and hurting other people and standing out there and saying, we're this and wearing black and screaming and throwing rocks and painting, you know, they went arm in arm and they sang, we shall overcome. They gathered the respect of people. And so they changed the world. What you're seeing now, it's just making the people who hate these folks hate them even more. Your, your mind's not gonna be changed. Your heart's not gonna be changed when people are being hateful and destructive, right? So, in any event, we need to think of ourselves differently. So we come down here to chapter four, and this is verse six that's up here, but I'm gonna read leading down to verse six, which we commented on all these verses last week, but everything is interrelated. We need to look at the context. Since therefore Christ suffered in the flesh, arm yourselves with the same way of thinking, the same mindset, right? For whoever has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin, so as to live for the rest of the time in the flesh, no longer for human passions, but for the will of God. For the time is past, for the time that is past suffices for doing what the Gentiles want to do, living in sensuality, passions, drunkenness, orgies, drinking parties, and lawless idolatry. With respect to this, they're surprised when you do not join them in the same flood of debauchery, and they malign you. That means they disrespect you, they make fun of you. But they will give an account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. For this is why the gospel was preached even to those who are dead, that though judged in the flesh the way people are, they might live in the spirit the way God does. So let's look at that. Um, everybody's gonna give an account, right? We're all gonna be judged. We're all gonna stand before the judgment seat of Christ. That's the reason why we need to pay attention to the way we're living our lives. When you're in Christ, that judgment is not a fearful time because I know that my sins have been forgiven. I have been set free and I have been forgiven and I have been made upright in God's sight and now I live my life for Christ. But I'm still gonna stand before Christ on judgment day. I'm still gonna give an answer for my life, but it's gonna be, what did I do with this life that he gave me? So on Sunday, I think most of you were here on Sunday, or you probably uh, watched online Sunday. Um, I read the parable of the talents. Remember that was where the master gave three of his servants a different amount of money, one five talents, one two talents, one one talent. Now I read the New Living and it said one five bags of silver, two bags of silver, one bag of silver, because the talent was a weight, right? It was how much, the, the money was weighed, in other words, it wasn't coinage in that, in that sense. And each of them came back 
And the first two doubled the master's money and then he gave them more responsibility. He gave them you know, greater things that they could do. And the last guy just buried it. This is like your life. You know, God gives you gifts. Do you use them or do you just bury them? Do you use them for yourself or use them for the Lord? But there's a reckoning coming. So when I stand before the Lord in Judgment Day, I'm going to give an account for my life. So I said this is like boot camp for eternity. This is preparation. God is going to give each of us responsibility in accordance with what we've done on earth or not done on earth. So if I'm in Christ, right, I've opened my heart. I've allowed Jesus to come inside of my life then I can count on the reality that I'm going to go to heaven. But what's gonna happen after that, right? There will be rewards. And for some, I think there will be no tears in heaven, none. But I think there might be some tears shed at the judgment bar of Christ when people realize that they just didn't do anything for the Lord. They just lived for themselves. Here God poured out all of his grace and mercy and did everything for them, and they just didn't do anything for him. They didn't serve him. I think that's, that's gonna be the difficulty in judgment. But it says, I mean, very clearly here, um, that uh, everybody is gonna give an account, right? This isn't just a Christian thing. It doesn't matter what your religion is or your lack of religion is, everybody is gonna stand before the judgment seat of Christ and give an answer for their life, okay? So this is why he's saying, if you got these people, you're trying to live your life right, right? You're, you're trying, you, you've put, past ways behind you. There are things that you used to do and, and you don't do those things anymore because you're living for Jesus. Well, now your old friends are making fun of you. Your old friends are hating on you. And what do you do about that? What does he say here? He says, they're gonna give an answer to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. Don't worry about what they think about you. They're gonna give an answer for their lives. You just need to be concerned about your life, okay? Now, here's this difficult verse. Right up here, verse six. For this is why the gospel was preached even to those who are dead. Some translations say who are now dead. That though judged in the flesh the way people are, they might live in the spirit the way God does. Now I've already made the case uh, from earlier verses that you don't have a second chance after death. So this isn't talking about people who died and now they're given uh, a chance to receive the gospel if they had rejected Christ in this life, okay? Dying is not gonna change who you are. It's not gonna change what you are. You set what you are and who you are by the decisions you're making right now. So when people get to the other side, they're not gonna suddenly say, well, you know what, I hated God in life, but now I love God. You're not gonna change. You need to change now, this is the time to change. But I think there, there had to be a reckoning in their thinking, if you will, um, to, so that they might recognize that they're awaiting judgment and they had an opportunity, whoever they were, wherever they were, they had an opportunity to respond to God as he chose to reveal himself. And as I've said in this church many times before, just being out in nature is an opportunity to see that there is a God. It's beautiful, it's ordered, but you also really recognize that, you know what, this is also a fallen world because there's a lot of bad stuff that happens. Bad stuff that happens to animals, bad stuff that happens to people. 
So it's obvious that there's a created order and there's a creator, but it's also equally obvious that there is something wrong. Well, we might not be able to work all that out, but you have a choice. Even if all you see is nature, you have a choice. Do I seek out the creator of all of this or do I just go my own way? And sooner or later, if you are seeking to do what's right, then Christ is gonna find you. That's what, again, that's what happened with the Apostle Paul. He was persecuting Christians and what he was doing was evil, but he thought it was right. And as soon as Jesus spoke to him, he recognized the voice, right? So wherever people are in the world, whether they've come to church or not come to church, we're each only responsible for the amount of light that God has shined. We're each only responsible for the amount of revelation God has given to us. Now, there's also revelation, right? God revealing himself in a very general way in your conscience. Everybody has a sense of right and wrong. If this was a world that was just based on pure survival of the fittest, there would be no right and wrong. There would be, I'm gonna get mine, and I don't care what happens to you. In fact, if you got what I want, I'm gonna take what I want from you. The very fact that we have a conscience that lets us know that there are certain things that are right and there are certain things that are wrong, okay? It's wrong to torture an animal, right? It's wrong to go and take something from somebody, especially if they don't have much to begin with, right? It's wrong to, to lie and tell stories about somebody and say that they did something when they didn't do anything. Now, God wrote that in the Ten Commandments. But if your conscience hasn't been just totally messed up, you better know that's the truth. Well, that's just, you know, that's the reality. If you take someone's life, that's wrong. It's evil. We know that. But that wouldn't matter if there wasn't a God who had written this moral code onto our consciences. Even before we... If you go right outside that door, before you go outside the church in our lobby and you, you go around and you look above the drink dispenser there, you'll see there's a plaque with the Ten Commandments on it, right? There's only one God and you worship Him. Don't make any idols and bow down in front of them, even if the idol is supposed to be God, right? You don't misuse God's name. Now that's, that's one people just let slide over their mouths all the time, like it's no big deal. GD this, GD that using Jesus' name when it's not in prayer. Oh, why would we do that? Why would we do that? I mean, if we just really think about why, why? That doesn't make any sense, okay? This is this amazing God, right? God's got a day that he set aside for, him, for himself to rest and he wants us to do the same thing. For Christians, that's Sunday. Sunday's become the de facto uh, seventh day, even though it was originally the first day, but that's the day that Jesus rose. Christians started worshiping on the day that Jesus rose. But we take that day as a day of rest. That just only makes sense. Honor your father and mother and the Lord. This is the first commandment with a promise, that you may live long on the earth. Well, why would I honor my father and mother? Because they're deserving of honor. Now, some people's fathers and mothers are disrespectable. They're not respectable. They're dishonored. You know, uh, they're not easy to honor. They're abusive. I can honor who they are even if I don't honor what they've done. My dad was an alcoholic. He was never there for me, ever. I mean, he was supposed to pay child support. 
and to show you how long ago this was, I think it was supposed to be like $250 a month or something like that. I think he paid my mom one time. One time. Because he was busy going to the bar. As soon as the bar opened at noon, he was there. And he closed it out every day. I don't know how he did that. I don't know where he came up with the money because most of the time he wasn't working, right? So for many years, I just hated that guy. Didn't want to have anything to do with him. Finally, in 2001, um, I watched a movie. I think the movie was made in 2000 because I, 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 I watched a video of the movie. But it, um, it's an old movie called Pay It Forward. Have you ever seen this movie? I can recommend it. I won't go into all of the details, but there was a, a, a plot line in the movie where um, there was a woman and her son. The whole thing happened in Las Vegas. And her son was a seventh grader, I think, in this teacher's classroom. And the teacher challenged these kids to come up with a way to change the world. So this kid came up with this idea of pay it forward. Basically, you go and you do something nice for somebody else, but you refuse to take anything from them. You say, now I want you to go and do something nice for somebody else. And there's all these cool examples of people doing this in little ways and big ways, but it comes all the way around to where the lady whose son this is, her mother is homeless out on the street in Las Vegas. And she and her mother are at odds and can't talk and don't get along at all. And they're very, she's very angry at her mother. I mean, she hates her mother. By the end of the movie, I won't get into all the details, but by the end of the movie, I'm going to cry right now. By the end of the movie, the mother and her daughter reconcile. Amazing, right? But the daughter had to forgive her mother. You know, and, and the mother had been an alcoholic and she'd done some things that were, you know, were not great and had hurt her daughter, but there was just no forgiveness initially. But forgiveness happened, and so there was reconciliation. I bawled like a baby, heaving sobs at the end of this movie because I knew that was me and my dad. And I just had not forgiven him. I didn't even know where he was. So I had to track him down. I knew he was in a nursing home somewhere in North Carolina because that's where his family was. Um, he'd been in the VA, but they, he wasn't there anymore. So what I did is I, I drove, I got a rental car and I drove to North Carolina and I stayed at Ridgecrest. It was a Baptist conference center back then. I think the Baptists have now sold it. It's sad because it's beautiful. Um, but I stayed there because I could stay there for a lot less than a hotel. And I remember I got up um, the day, I think this was the day after Thanksgiving. I got up, I had Thanksgiving there, I like in the dining hall there basically, right? I got up the next, the next day, I got on the, on the phone. Now this is before everybody had cell phones, right? Um, I mean, people had, I, I had a cell phone, I just couldn't use it for this purpose because it was, too costly at the time. Um, you had to pay by the minute. 
You know, now you just get a plan and just use your phone, right? But it used to be, it's like, oh, I've only got this many minutes. And, you know, once you use them up, ah, you know. So they would track all your numbers and what you called. And you could get these huge sell bills because, you you know, you use too many minutes. Oh, it was their way of really, really getting it. But I just used an old, you know, phone that they had there. And I used a phone book. And I just started going through the nursing homes. Call, ask for my dad. Nope. Call, ask for my dad. Nope. Third number I called. Yep. So I drove to that nursing home, spent the day with my dad. I mean, honestly, it wasn't, you know, this precious moments day or anything like that. My dad was my dad. He was, I mean, he had a lot of his own problems. And a lot of times when people are hurting and they've got their own problems, that's all they think about. And so he was kind of that way. Um, But it was a time of reconciliation. Right, and I had to, I had to have a change of heart in order for that to happen. You know what people don't realize is when you have a problem with somebody, if you don't make it right, it doesn't go away. Mm-hmm. Twenty years can go by, thirty years can go by, forty years can go by. It doesn't change. You can still be in the same relationship that you were in or lack thereof after twenty years, or thirty or forty because you didn't do anything. So one of my best friends in high school when I was a freshman was a kid that lived right around the corner from me. We used to do all kinds of fun stuff together. It was illegal to pop firecrackers inside the city limits of Phoenix, but he and I got a hold of firecrackers and were popping them all over the neighborhood like little idiots. Um, But it was me and that kid and a kid that lived right behind me. And we were just, we kind of ran around together and ran around together. They built these outdoor three-wall racquetball courts uh, when our high school was built. So everybody was playing old-school three-wall racquetball, right? It's different than four-wall and a roof racquetball. It really is. It's just a different type of a game. But this kid and I were very competitive with one another, and we're getting in there, and we're, we're playing racquetball, we're playing really hard. So we bet a quarter on a game. A quarter. And there was a dispute over who actually won the game. And from that point on, we stopped being friends and we never talked again. That's just utterly stupid. But you know, I was in ninth grade. Now that doesn't make me okay. I wasn't a Christian yet either. But even after I became a Christian, why didn't I go make things right with that kid? You know, and I never, I never showed that I was gonna be any sort of a witness to him, any sort of a positive influence on him or anything like that. I just left things as they were. I didn't make things right. I should have, I could have had a friendship with somebody. I could have continued a friendship with somebody. Well, that's one thing when kids do that, but you know, that happens with adults all the time. And it's, you know, so, so-and-so said something to me and they did that to me and it offended me. And so we lose out on these Amazing opportunities, right? All right? Well, sometimes I need to be willing to suffer in order to do what is right, okay? So that's what this is talking about. Now, this is why the gospel was preached even to those who are dead, that though judged in the flesh the way people are, they might live in the spirit the way God does, right? This is not saying there's a second chance. Does this mean those who are dead in transgressions and sins but alive in the flesh, right? 
or does this mean those who are actually dead in the grave? Well, there's a translation of the Bible called the God's Word translation, and I thought that it, it kind of uh, lent some interesting, it shed some light on this. Unbelievers insult you now because they are surprised that you no longer join them in the same excesses of wild living. They will give an account to the one who is ready to judge the living and the dead. After all, the good news was told to people like that, although they are now dead. It was told to them so that they could be judged like humans in their earthly lives and live like God in their spiritual lives. So, at some point, while these dead persons were still on earth, the gospel was preached to them, not later in the grave. Presumably, they accepted the truth of the gospel and now live like God spiritually. So that's kind of one way of looking at that. So <clears throat> if we read 1 Peter 4, 1 through 6, in the flow of Peter's thought, I gave my own kind of paraphrase, right? I wrote this several years ago, but this is just my way of looking at those words and distilling them in my brain and then saying them my way. You need to suffer through the tests and temptations of the flesh because when you do, you will be done with sinful actions. Your life on earth will be about doing God's will, not fulfilling your own desires. You've sinned enough. Now, to be sure, your old friends who haven't submitted to Christ cannot understand your change of heart. In fact, they treat you badly because you won't go out partying with them anymore. Don't worry, they'll be judged just like you and I will. Everybody will stand before Christ. This is why the gospel was preached successfully to people who were once like them, but who are dead now. Those unbelievers, or these unbelievers, judge those who follow Christ as fools, but all of us fools will live our lives eternally according to God's standards, not according to the expectations and values of those who live worldly, unbelieving lives right now right? So there's two ways of looking at this. Um, the gospel is preached to those who are, who are dead. This can mean spiritually dead. That's all of us until we come to Christ. You're born alive, right? If you're living your life now and you're drawing breath, but we're living spiritual, spiritually dead lives, right? It's, I've often said it's like this, have you ever been sitting so long that a part of your body falls asleep, asleep, like your foot falls asleep or your leg falls asleep and you get up and it's like, you know, pins and needles, pins and needles, pins and needles, right? You know, it's that weird, you know, feeling or I've done this, I've fallen asleep on my hand before and then I turn over and my hand is like, it even feels like it's thick. I'm like, you know, Lord, please make it so my hand is okay because right now, you know, or, you know, have you ever been to the dentist and they give you Novocaine and whatever and then you lip is very fat like this and you talk like this, you can't even Right? That's kind of the way your spirit is, right? You're just dragging this along. It's there and it can be brought to life, but only Christ can do that. So, then there's the idea of obviously being, you know, physically, literally dead. Well, we don't want to die while we're still spiritually dead or we'll be dead forever, right? That's, you'd be raised, judged, and destroyed in hell, dead forever. You need to be 
raised now in the spirit, so you'll be raised forever to be with Christ, okay? Um, so if the gospel was preached only while people were on earth, not after they died, um, then listen to this comment by uh, this uh, church. He's called one of the church fathers. His name is Irenaeus. He said, the divine prophets lived according to Jesus Christ. Well, they didn't know Jesus Christ. But Irenaeus is saying they lived according to Jesus Christ even before Jesus came to earth. Further, he says, and that of him, even the prophets were disciples in the spirit, looking forward to him as their teacher. There you go. Looking forward to him as their teacher. And this is those who are seeking God and haven't quite found Christ. They perhaps uh, have not even had access to a Bible. But they're, they're seeking God as this God who is has established a moral code for us. They're seeking to do what's right. They're trying to love people. They're trying to help people. They're trying to live right lives. Eventually, they're going to be found by God. God's going to find them, okay? Um, even if that means that they never find Christ personally while they're on earth. So um, C.S. Lewis wrote this series of children's books called The Chronicles of Narnia. They made a couple of them, I think they made three of them into movies. They didn't go any further than that. Um, and they were pretty good. Not great, but they were pretty good. But the books are great. Even though they're children's books, they could definitely be read by adults and enjoyed by adults. In fact, that was one of C.S. Lewis's things. He said, uh, you know, if a, if a children's book can only be enjoyed by a child, it's probably not a very good book. So he wrote these children's books, and they're called The Chronicles of Narnia. Um, the seventh book, he wrote seven of them, is called The Last Battle. Now, The Last Battle is really kind of C.S. Lewis's way of looking at Revelation, okay? The end of time. There is a character in this story who is not a worshiper of Aslan. Now, Aslan is a lion in Narnia, but he's a Christ-like figure, okay? I know that might sound weird, but you know, Jesus is called the, the, the Lion of the tribe of Judah, so you can see where C.S. Lewis might have gotten that. It's, you know, it's a symbol. Lions are regal and powerful and all these other things. Um, but Aslan is the Christ figure. He's, he represents good. And there, there's, in the early story, there's a white witch. She freezes the world and she represents evil. But evil kind of rears its head in various ways and at the end, there's this false religion that rises up. There's this false god. I, I want to say his name was Tash, something like that. And um, the way they presented, or the way Lewis presented this, it, it was the kind of, of religion that, um, that has very, very devoted and militant followers. It reminded me of Islam, frankly. Okay, well, a worshiper of Tash ends up in Aslan's country at the end. And he stands before Aslan and he's terrified because he thought Aslan was evil and Tosh was good. And he thought he was gonna be mauled and destroyed and whatever. But Aslan explained to him, no, you worship Tosh with characteristics of Aslan. And you put the evil characteristics of, 
Tosh on Athlon. In other words, although the God you were worshiping was false, you were worshiping him with the right attributes of the true God. And so as the result in the Chronicles of Narnia, C.S. Lewis has this fellow stumbling into Aslan's country and feeling perfectly comfortable there. I suspect this was Lewis's way of helping us to understand what happens to people in other parts of the world who are sincere about their faith and who are worshiping their God, just not understanding that their God is a false God, but worshiping their God with these attributes of the true God. Friends, God is good. God is good. And he's not gonna destroy anybody in hell who tried to do right and tried to do good and sought to worship him. He's just really not. But I think that what we, find, what we could find here, and perhaps what we find earlier, um, because if we go up to chapter three, um, verses 18 through 22, but I won't go all the way through that, I'll read 18 and 19. It says, For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit, in which, that is, in the spirit, he went and proclaimed to the spirits in prison. Right? So what was the substance of that proclamation? The substance was that he had accomplished redemption. He had gone to the cross. He had... Uh, made a way for people to get into heaven through him. Anybody before Christ who sought God, and as Irenaeus says of these prophets, the divine prophets lived according to Jesus Christ, even though they didn't know Jesus Christ, right? And that of him, even the prophets were disciples in the spirit, looking forward to him as their teacher. Anyone who was in that position Christ simply proclaimed the truth to, and they had already responded to an early version of that truth, if you will. And so they were allowed to follow Christ from this shadowy realm that the, the Hebrews called Sheol, that was their word for the realm of the dead, for the grave, into paradise. And we call it paradise simply because Jesus told the thief on the cross, the criminal on the cross, there was one criminal on one side of Jesus being crucified. There was another criminal on the other side of Jesus being crucified. One was making fun of him, hating him, just like all of the people that were below the cross. And the other one said, you know, how can you speak like that? We're, we're suffering justly. We did wrong. This man has done nothing wrong. And then he turned to Jesus and he said, Lord, he said, remember me when you come into your kingdom. Jesus said, Today, you will be with me in paradise. Jesus died that day. And that criminal died that day. And that criminal was with Jesus in paradise. Now, there's a passage of scripture in Ephesians chapter four that talks of, it, it quotes a, a psalm and talks about Jesus leading forth a host of captives. And there are, Older theologians, uh, I don't mean they're, they're alive and old today, I mean theologians from long ago, who saw that as Christ proclaiming the gospel in Hades. That's the Greek word for Sheol, okay? It's often translated hell, but this is really not the same idea. Hell is the final state. Hell is the lake of fire. Nobody escapes from hell. But these folks were all awaiting judgment and Jesus brought them to wait with him in paradise. 
you, if you are in Christ, on the day you close your eyes in this life, in this world, you will open your eyes with Christ. Now, paradise, you know, this is just a way of understanding being in the very presence of God where everything is good, right? It's, you don't have to have, as the Muslims do, a literal garden with, you know, 70 virgins and fruit trees and all of this other stuff. You're just in the presence of, of Christ. That's paradise. That's what it amounts to, okay? Um, so Christ did proclaim that he had accomplished redemption to those who were in the grave, but not as a means of giving anybody a second chance. As I said, the decision you've made in this life regarding God is the decision you're gonna carry with you to the grave. It's imperative that you make the right decision now because there's, there's, there's no guarantee of anything beyond the grave, um, uh, any opportunity is what I mean, beyond the grave, okay? Um, so we could call this a proto-gospel, a pre-gospel that was preached to the patriarchs, the good news that God would save them since they revered and trusted him and responded to the revelation that they had received. The same idea of responsibility in accordance with the amount of revelation made available is presented in Romans 1, 19 and 20. And this makes clear what I said to you earlier, that God reveals himself in creation and to your conscience. Listen to what it says. For what can be known about God is plain to them, for God has made it plain to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly seen through what has been made so that they are without excuse. So Jesus didn't preach the gospel to those in the realm of the dead in order to give them another chance to repent. No, they'd already had that opportunity and Christ made proclamation of that fact. And he brought with him to paradise all those in history who had believed and hoped for God's salvation. All will come to judgment. God is not unfair. Each person will be judged according to what he or she had opportunity to hear and respond to. Without Christ, we are dead in transgressions and sins. And we are made alive when the Holy Spirit enters our lives and give us, gives us a new birth. Listen to what it says in Ephesians 2, 1 through 6. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins which you, in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ, by grace you have been saved, and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. And then John 3, five through six, Jesus answered, truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and of the spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the spirit is spirit. That's why we say you have to be born again. Your flesh, your natural self, cannot enter the kingdom of heaven. Your spirit has to be raised and reconstituted, if you will. Your spirit has to be raised and metamorphosized, raised and transformed. And then when you die, that spirit goes to be with Christ, and then you are raised with a, a body, not unlike this physical body, in that you're gonna be able to touch people and talk to people and 
you know, we, we won't need food, but we'll be able to eat. Jesus did. Jesus appeared to the disciples and they thought he was a ghost. He said, here, you got some fish? Give it to me. And he ate with them, had communion with them. So the body that we'll receive is like this one, but unlike this one in that it's healthy and, and energetic and it lives forever, okay? Um, and Romans 8, 9 through 11 says, however, you are not in the flesh, but in the spirit. That's how we're to walk, in the spirit. If indeed the spirit of God dwells in you, but if anyone does not have the spirit of Christ, he does not belong to him. If Christ is in you, though the body is dead because of sin, yet the spirit is alive because of righteousness. But if the spirit of him who, is, who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells in you. So you see, you get a spiritual resurrection now if you call on the name of Jesus. If you actually call out to him and say, Lord Jesus, save me. That's all, that's all that's required, right? The Bible tells a story of two men that went into the synagogue. That was their version of the church. There was one that was a Pharisee and he went to the front of the church and was real proud of himself. Looked up toward heaven, basically started bragging on himself. He said, I thank you, Lord, that I am not as other men. I thank you that I give a tithe of all that I make. You're just bragging on himself. I don't know how you, how you pray and brag on yourself. I, I don't get that. But that was kind of the you know, sanctimonious, self-righteous mindset of the Pharisees. And there was another man who was a tax collector. Everybody hated the tax collectors back then. Who likes the tax man, right? You know, I got a call from a tax collector right in the middle of the shutdown and the pandemic. We do everything we're supposed to do as a church every single month, all the time. We file all this paperwork, whatever. But inevitably, there's some paperwork at some point in time that they just don't get right, and they send us these letters. And then my ladies, who are not professional tax accountants, have to work through all this and call them and track it down, and like, oh, we're sorry, and blah, blah, blah. But they do it over and over and over and over and over. We get these papers all the time. But this is the first time I got a call now, this guy was trying to be as nice as he could, but I wasn't happy with the guy who's calling me on something. I'm, we pay what we're supposed to pay. I am I absolutely sure that, we, in fact, we've gotten stuff from the IRS that says, oh, we owe you money. Here, you overpaid. But they never put two and two together. I'm saying that because this guy could have been the nicest tax collector in the world, but I was not very happy with him. I said, you're calling me in the middle of a pandemic. We can't even meet. We're not even doing anything right now. I was not terribly pastorly, I think. <laughs> I didn't cuss him out or anything like that. But, but I can imagine how these people felt about these tax collectors who came to their door. Money. Roman Empire. Money. The thing is, those tax collectors could collect as much as they saw fit to collect, and they got to keep the extra. How horrible would that be? Your local tax collector could say, eh, I think you owe me about this much. Your property taxes are gonna be raised because I need a new Mercedes, you know? Mm -hmm. So, but this tax collector sat in the back of the room. He wouldn't even look up. The other guy's looking up toward heaven. Now that is how they prayed, by the way. They saw God as beyond them. They lifted their hands and they prayed toward heaven. But this guy was bragging on himself. Tax collector looked down, wouldn't even look up. And all he said was, God, be merciful to me, 
a sinner. Seven words. Jesus said, one of those men went out of there right. One of those men went out of there justified. In other words, one of those men left church saved that day. And it wasn't the guy who was all holy and righteous and bragging on himself. It was the guy that cried out for mercy. So that's, that's all that is required, but that puts you in a different position. That puts you in the spirit because then the spirit of God comes inside and he does a complete remodeling job, right? He starts in your innermost chamber, probably the master bedroom, and he starts working through and working through your life and working through that house that is you so that he can make you what he wants you to be. So today, we preach the gospel to those who are spiritually dead in the hope that they will repent and live. We're gonna all die and we're gonna be raised and judged. Those who are in Christ will live with him for eternity. Those who have chosen their own selfish desires above God will be destroyed in an eternal hell. It is appointed for everyone once to die and then comes judgment. And many of those who sleep in dust, this is from the Old Testament, by the way, this is Daniel 12 too. And many of those who sleep in the dust of the earth shall awake, some to everlasting life and some to shame and everlasting contempt. Then Jesus said, do not marvel at this, for an hour is coming when all who are in the tombs will hear his voice. That is the son of man's voice. That's Jesus' voice. And come out, those who have done good to the resurrection of life and those who have done evil to the resurrection of judgment. So don't worry if you're in Christ. We don't have to fear judgment. Jesus said, truly, truly, I say to you, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life. And he does not come into judgment, but he's passed from death unto life. That's all out of John. That's John 5, 24. And the previous verses were just a few verses down in John 5, 28 and 29. So judgment will be a time of reward, not condemnation for us. For there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And that's Romans 8, 1. For God has not destined us for wrath, but to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ. That's 1 Thessalonians 5.9. With that in mind, don't fear. For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, so that each one may receive what is due for what he has done in the body, whether good or evil. But you don't want to stand before God without Christ. The scripture says it is a terrifying thing to fall into the hands of the living God. So I'm gonna end just a little bit early. You guys have been very attentive and it's been awesome and that's been one verse. Um, but uh, I do have notes for the rest of these verses, but I don't wanna even begin to try to do that this week and rush through it all, but it's gonna be some good stuff. So I hope you'll come back and yeah, invite a few people. So let's pray together and I will send you on your way. Father, thank you so much for this opportunity and for your word. Um, there's been enough gospel preached here to to save everyone in the world, anybody who's seeking you. And so I pray for those that are watching now or later through YouTube. I pray for these that are here in this room right now. I pray, Father, that each of us will receive this truth. More importantly, we'll receive the one who called himself the way, the truth, and the life. And we will know that we're saved. And we will know that one day when we stand before you in judgment, we will have nothing to fear. And I pray all this in Jesus' name, amen.